Welcome back, Flesh and Bold. Yes, welcome back, listeners. We hope you had a good summer, and now that school is back in session, so are we. School. But I can't think of a better way than to start by celebrating LGBTQ plus history month. What about you, Nat? Yes, girl, you already know. And today we'll be discussing sex as a social construct. Wait, what? Did I hear that right? Did you actually gender? (laughs) No, I get it. I know where you're coming from. myself when I was studying sociology in school, which I want to believe wasn't too long ago. I remember, look, girl, (laughs) what you're not going to do is, no. But I remember learning uh, that sex is biologically constructed and gender is socially constructed. This conversation that we're going to have today, I think, is important base level knowledge, um, especially as you and I and our listeners build upon our awareness and knowledge for those affected by the idea that biological sex is binary. So everyone is impacted by this, but especially, especially our intersex and gender nonconforming sibs, even our trans sibs out there. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about how to define intersex? That might be a new word for some of us. And I just want to make sure we're all on the same page before we start our combo. Like, what is intersex? What is the binary of sex in general? Can you talk through that? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm going to give you a definition of intersex that is used and presented by the Intersex Society of North America. And basically, they say that intersex is a general term used for a variety of conditions in which a person is born with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't seem to fit in the typical definitions of female or male. So when we're talking about that binary, right, it's the idea that one has to be female or male. Wow. Okay. So that's interesting. How do you think that relates, if at all, to trans being a trans person? Because I think some people would be confused and say, well, that sounds a lot like what you guys have talked about before about trans folks. So can you tell us how intersex is different than trans? Yeah. Well, right. With the focus and when we think about trans folks, we're talking about gender identity which is totally different um, than sex, right? And we can even go dive deeper into gender identity and the other ways that gender is talked about, right? Because there's also gender expression. Um, but I pretty much to kind of hammer it home for people, the way I like to think about gender identity is, and what you'll see people talk about, is it might be somewhat related to sex, but it's not they're not synonymous, right? And so someone's gender identity, when we think of it, can we can think of like the essence of who they are. Um, and that that's one of the things we'll be talking about today. Um, kind of difference, differences and gendering things and kind of how those folks are off, also affected by the idea that sex is binary. Yeah, I agree. I think what I try to tell my son is, you know, um, gender identity has a lot to do with how you feel on the inside, right? And being intersex is not necessarily how you feel on the inside. Mm. 
you know, um, but we're going to get into that. So let, let's kick it off. Yeah. Well, I think even what you just shared is a great point because I think the way that I used to talk about sex and the way that I used to share kind of the difference between sex and gender was in this, uh, kind of old way, I would say the traditional way of being, well, uh, gender is socially constructed and uh, sex has to do with more with biology, someone's biology slash anatomy and things. And so we'll kind of unpack that and deconstruct that today. But I'm curious, uh, how have you learned about sex and gender as it relates to medicine? Ah. <laughs> um, I don't remember explicitly learning anything about sex or gender in medicine other than when it comes to risk of disease. Mm. So like, you know, women are higher risk of getting certain diseases because of their sex or because of their hormone levels, right? So certain types of cancer and, and that. But I don't remember there being an explicit focus on like sex being a social or a biological construct. I think it was just assumed mm. that everybody um, agreed with that or there was no there was no even paradigm to challenge because that is just what it was, right? And similar to, to sex, gender, I don't even remember having a conversation at all about gender and a gender identity or gender expression. I think at least in the medical field, those are terms that are still fairly new to a lot of folks. A lot of providers are still trying to wrap their head around what does it mean? What does gender actually mean? Um, and especially like when you think about research, even how we present science, like male versus female, mm -hmm. even when we're talking about humans, right. right? Not necessarily rats or monkeys or whatever, humans. We don't say, we don't allow people to self-identify for sex or for gender or either, you know? Um, so I think we still have a long way to go and I hope that we learn more with the podcast today. Yeah, well, I know. So the literature and paradigm shifts around the way we talk about and think about gender um, has been shifting and rather quickly, right? So the first time I even heard the concept that not only is gender socially constructed, but so is sex, was just like two years ago, honestly. Whoa, I mind blown. I know. And I like to think of myself as someone who's with it. But I remember when I first heard it, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> let, me, um, let me do some research and follow up. And so a lot of this conversation, though, that is happening is happening by folks and scholars who have been impacted uh, most by the conceptualization of sex and gender as binary, those folks being um, trans and intersex folks. So I'm excited to bring those conversations to our listeners today. And I think of like even what you're saying and how those are relatively new terms and ideas uh, in medicine. And I think about how if we can just expand our awareness and knowledge, how um, we can provide better services to folks mm, because it's it. also new, I would say, uh, mental health. I don't hear anyone talking about sex as a social construct specifically. Really? And, and I think there's a lot of struggle right now with even like, and I say even like, because it seems to be a more popular or prevalent um, social justice issue with uh, being in more inclusive for uh, our trans sibs and clients and students and all that. 
And so like uh, that's in our view, but this idea of how we're even approaching sex isn't there. And I think it's it's kind of necessary so that we can really honor the dignity and well-being of the people we're supposed to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so and Davis and uh, Previs, their social cultural scholars have explored the social construction of gender as performative, fluid, and non-universal category for decades, but the notion that physical sex is also socially constructed has acquired far less um, exploration and attention. So I'm glad that we're going to give it some today. Wow. Okay. So you're talking about gender here being performative, fluid, non-universal. So those are um, such interesting words to describe gender. And I know we're going to dive into sex a little bit more, but before we get there, like, can you talk a little bit more about that? Like how we are um, thought to think about gender as socially constructed? Like, tell me more about the notion behind that. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. Let's get into it. So first, let's start with the idea of a social construct, because I think we we just say that often, and we're not really we haven't broken down what a Break social construct it is. Down. So yeah, I like this definition that um, a resource called Growing Up Transgender uh, uses when talking about a um, a social construct. And basically, we can conceptualize a social construct as an artificial boundary or boundaries around groupings that are defined and deemed important by culture or society. And obviously, because of the diversity of culture, right, these groupings or these social constructs can be complex and messy, as they often are. We'll talk a little bit about those. But um, what are seen as real, biological, or the truth, right, so what is the way that it's supposed to be, the way it's socially constructed, is defined by dominant groups, the groups in society that have power. So when it comes to gender in our society, the, the people who are defining that truth are cishet, um, they're white, uh, non-disabled, dot, 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 right? They're the dominant groups. So they're defining what is masculine and what is feminine. And, and that shows up in our society currently in a lot of ways. I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah, well, I'm even like, before I even go there, I'm just even thinking about like, why is this, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why does this happen? And at first, like my immediate thought while you were talking was like insecurity, like people just want to be on top and like put everybody down on the bottom. But now as I'm thinking about it, like that might be true, but also like our human minds are so feeble sometimes. Like they're great, wonderful machines, but also like people are just trying to like put other things into boxes quickly and right and like trying to make sense of a very complex world and taking all these shortcuts to do it right and i think sex is no different right and gender is no different people are just like okay what box do i put you in okay and when you don't match can't compute brain can't compute right and so um i i wonder if you know some of the first people to put other people into boxes were these like right like cis het hetero white man, right? And then tried to go on and spew their normativity to the world with white supremacy and heteronormativity Nia, and all those things. Nia, you wonder if those were the <laughs> people that tried to, I'm or to, you know. I know. Okay, <laughs> fair. Fair, fair, fair. But yeah, I think it's, um, 
which is really interesting. Like I said earlier, we just accepted this as fact, mm. right? Like, I don't think I've ever thought to challenge that just like other things, sex and gender and all of these things likely exist on a spectrum. You know, very few things in the world are like one thing or the other, mm. you know? So, you know, one of the ways I think about how gender specifically has shown up in my personal life is even from being like a little girl, right? And being seen as a little girl that mom always wanted to put into like flowery dresses and my room was like always pink and like, I didn't really care about that stuff. And I was, you know, said to myself that I felt like more of a tomboy. Like I don't want to wear like all the cute, pretty dresses like you know I would wear them and I thought I looked cute in them but I was like much rather doing more active stuff um but then even when my son was born like and I thought I think you and I've talked about this is like him getting onesies and stuff that have like trucks and all you know all those things on it or um onesies that say ladies man even kind of like pushing him towards a sexual orientation at like you know zero years old so I feel like those are the ways that I've seen it um, kind of show up in my own personal life. Do you, what about you? I, you know, I think it's there in a similar way. I think, right, we talk, we start to gender things for other folks at a young, very young age, like the buying the pink for the girls and the blue for the boys. And um, uh, I think you know, it's important for us to talk about gender, but it's also important for us to think about intersectionality. Say it. Um, and so I'm curious, right, because gender looks different uh, through certain racialized perspectives, right? I can think of uh, how that was for me growing up, but I'm curious, like, how that might have been for you or how you see that play out um, specifically uh, as a Black woman. Yeah, well, like the first thing that just came to my head was thinking like about Sojourner Truth, Ain't I a Woman, right? And even one of our first conversations about gender, when I was like, I think I'm agender. Actually, I know I'm agender. And you were like, well, is it because, you know, that Black women aren't um, kind of seen as the same type of woman as a white woman is, essentially? Like the kind of the, the rules are different, the the standards seem to be different. And so I 100% feel like that exists, right? Like, you know, Black women being seen as not feminine enough, right? Or too strong or, you know, the ones that um, need to break their backs to have others survive. And that's not only necessarily for white you know, white populations, but also within our, the black populations, right? Like women being, black women being too strong to be able to show emotion, mm. right? And so I, I definitely feel like there's multiple layers of intersectionality there that's important for us to think about and what that means for other racialized groups. Word. Mm. I think that really like sat with me. I think, you know, Basically, what you're talking about is the idea how Black women have always had to prove their womanhood, like like as in 
the early 1800s with Sojourner's Truth in Our Woman speech, where she did call into question the treatment of Black women and them being seen as women, especially in social justice and equity movements, uh, right? Because uh, those were happening in, in the background of the speech. Um, so, and this is actually an issue that still persists today. Uh, there has been research that has been conducted um, such as by Coles and Pasek that kind of get give the same idea, like th this idea that black women aren't seen as women, um, and especially in relation to like equity and movements that are happening in backgrounds and, and things going on, which to me is so interesting, uh, given like founders of Black Lives Matter movement, the just the the we owe everything I, i'm just come back to it <laughs> black women are our past our present our future we'll take that. We, we we owe everything to black women uh but yeah 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 and i think also too with my own personal journey has been this bigger question for me and i don't know i don't know if we can answer it today but like what is womanhood mm. right like do I not feel like a woman? Do I not feel like I have any specific gender because it's BS? Like there is, what What does that mean, right? To be a woman, what does it mean to be a part of um, or to experience womanhood in whatever way that is? And so that's the bigger question for me too is, you know, like we're placing these people into categories and saying that there's some shared, you know, whether it's, biology experience or whatever um but is it something more than that is that the thing is that the thing that binds us or is that just a way that somebody put people into groups specifically for the reasons to subjugate them right like what is womanhood what is manhood what is any of those are any of those things yeah well i think in what you're pointing to and and bringing out the idea of the conflict of how gender has been socially constructed. Honestly, there are similarities to the idea of how sex has been socially constructed and, and the issues within that of trying to uh, categorize people. And similar to the conversation that we just had about race and gender identity, there might be similar racial dynamics that exist in the socialization of sex. Well, I would love to learn more about this because, you know, I think you said earlier that we do know a little bit more about gender as a social construct. It's becoming more popular. It's in the vernacular. Like you said, everybody knows social construct. Nobody knows what it means. Um, so let's talk about sex, baby. <laughs> let's do it. Uh, so first, let me just say that folks aren't saying, right? that biology and biological parts such as gonads, uteri, and testes aren't real or don't matter. Rather, what matters is how society assigns people sex and groups sex. That isn't definite. That's the issue. I don't get it. Can you say it a little slower for us in the back who can't hear? Can you say it again? Well, essentially, so... For example, Davis and Previs discuss how society, specifically medical professionals, tend to rely on genital appearance at birth and more directly the presence of a phallus, right? So a penis or something penis-shaped and like. And that is usually the basis of sex assignment. 
that constitutes the essential sign of sex. Um, but that has also varied over years. So you know how earlier, a little earlier, you were talking about someone decided this was truth and we ran with it. Well, actually, um, the idea that um, genital appearance, sex hormones, sex chromosomes, and the brain uh, chemistry and use have all been used to categorize bodies into sex at different points in time. Meaning that it was it wasn't just this idea of the presence of a phallus like um, body part. So, and I remember one time I was preparing for a lecture on this topic around. Uh, how sex is assigned, and I asked you uh, in your training how 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 do y'all assign sex at birth? Do you remember that? I think so. Did I just say you look at the diaper area, you keep it moving? You, <laughs> do you remember? You gave me a real like. Well, this isn't that helpful for for the information I just read about sex as a construct, or or right, it's exactly <sighs> proven like to their point. Like it's only like about what you see because I even think about the main way I learned about sex was this idea of sex chromosomes and I wonder how many people actually do chromosome like testing when they have a child yeah um it's actually pretty common so there and it's becoming easier to do okay, yeah. um so earlier on in a person's a pregnant person's um pregnancy they will do uh, genetic analysis, mostly for like genetic ab ab anomalies or abnormalities, not necessarily, you know, like chromosomal, like sex determination. But in getting that genetic analysis, you see what the sex is. Mm. So you'll see if a, if a baby potentially has an XY or an XX or has two Xs and a Y right. and what the the differences are there so that does come out but i think before we had all of that i think mostly you would look at the diaper and say oh it's so interesting that it was phallic centric but like is there a penis there yes no and then you know if it was hard to interpret then maybe they would send like a genetic analysis or something ahead of time but yeah you look at the diaper does it look like it is a penis no yes can you not tell then you continue on is um how we were trained back in the day hopefully it's gotten a little bit more um more in depth since then yeah i hope so too well and even if that's right how it's done now actually like in the past uh sex wasn't just defined in a binary divide um, so pathologist Theodore Klebs, for instance, first classified anatomical sex into five categories. And uh, in 1876, uh, this is when uh, Theodore Klebs was doing his work. Uh, he used the presence of gonads, ovaries, testes, or a mix of ovarian and testicular tissue as his guide. And even also biologist and gender scholar Anne Fausto Sterling further described these divisions in her influential 1993 piece, The Five Sexes. Wait, why don't I know about this, though? Like, why is this not more well-known? Yeah. <laughs> there, there's five sexes or maybe even more? Say more. Well, it, it gets around to the idea that, you know, some people don't fit into the binary, right? Don't fit into male or female. And the ways in which we as society 
right, have classified folks maybe might not be inclusive or expansive enough. Um, So basically, some babies are born intersex. um, So their bodies aren't clearly within the binary, aren't clearly female or male. And while there is no reliable estimate of intersex people in the population, a commonly reported statistic is that intersex genitalia variation occurs about once in every 1,500 to 2,000 American births. Yeah, that's not super surprising to me, but I think that's really interesting to give that statistic out for our listeners. Like, it's we're not saying that every single baby is born intersex, but we're also saying it's not zero. Like, there yeah. is a sizable, you know, population that we need to be talking about. We need to understand what um, what challenges and what opportunities we face to better care for these kids, right? Um, can you tell me how biological sex as a binary has shown up outside of health or medicine? Because I think in health and medicine, it's a more clear cut because we're actually looking right at some genitals and making a decision based on that, whether it's right or wrong, that's what we're doing. Is there, are there instances where it's not in medicine or health or in that domain? Yeah, well, of course, I would say, and that can be in other like micro instances or macro instances, there was a pretty popular kind of controversy around this idea that was, um, that has been on the more modern side. Okay, Uh, where? Say more? Yeah, Uh, well, surprise, surprise, sports. don't you know? <laughs> Do you remember hearing about the controversy around the sex of South African runner Castor Semenya? Oh my God! You know I'm the wrong person to ask for this. No, I do not know the controversy. Yeah, you so, you, you read enlighten me. You read the books. Um, well, Semenya, a black woman, might I say, who has never self-identified as hyperandrogenic or intersex, was basically dusting folks, right? Dusting folks where? On the track. Um, <laughs> uh, and per usual, her competitors seized on her appearance and performance to pose stigmatizing questions about whether she was eligible to compete as a female. Wait, why is this? Why was this a question? Whether she was able to compete as a female or not? As essentially, she was racing these white women and leaving them in her dust, and they was crying. <laughs> and so some Karens came out. This is like oddly reminiscent of things people said about Michelle Obama, Serena Williams. Yeah. I think, right, that connects to me. Like, I I think about the ways in which society dehumanizes Black women or tries to tear down uh, Black women, Black femmes uh, by connecting them to masculinity or saying that they're not women. And so this happened and they basically said, we're trying to say that uh, Semenya uh, wasn't female. And she was actually temporarily banned from competition. Wow. The yeah, the International Olympic Committee and the International Association of Athletics Federation issued sex testing policies centered on hyper hyper andro- That's a word. I <laughs> Hyperandrogenism. Thank you. Um, <laughs> which is basically a medical term describing. Uh, 
uh, in females higher than normal levels of androgen, including testosterone, and often associated with intersex traits. So following years of scrutiny, right, um, a a bunch of hoops that Semenya uh, had to jump through, she was reinstated. She ended up winning silver at the 2012 Olympic Games in the summer of 2015. The sex testing policies were suspended after Dati Shan, an Indian 100-meter sprinter, successfully appealed to the Court of Aberration for sport. Chan didn't advance the semifinals in 2016 Olympic Games, but Semenya won gold in the 800-meter race. And then immediately following her win, uh, the IAAF, so that's the International Association of Athletics Federation, made a statement that they would consider the possibility of reinstating the hyperandrogenism, did I get it that time? <laughs> I think uh, you got it. Uh, testing. So they were going to rein- reinstate, basically, uh, sex testing. So basically, the idea uh, that one's eligibility to compete as a female athlete um, is debatable and that the physical criteria used to judge femaleness throughout the year is a primary example of how the categorization of sex is a social variable process rather than a biological one. Okay, Professor Heard, you said a lot of words, yeah. like a hundred million words. What are you saying? <laughs> what does it mean? So basically what that means is if Semenya's sex, for example, is able to be debated right, on this kind of national and global stage, actually, because maybe there was this question about her femaleness that might get to this idea that there's not inherent truth in the ways that we're categorizing sex and classifying folks. So the idea that they can even question it after she um, has been assigned, right, female and identifies herself as female like that calls into question the idea of biological truth within um, sex construction. Can I dig a little deeper? So what you're saying, I feel like what you're saying is they made rules, they being whoever they you want to call the they, Mm -hmm. made rules about sex. And then even when they put people in these boxes, when they show up to do the thing, they're like, eh. I know you. we made this rule and we said technically you're this thing. You know, you, you qualify as what we said you were. We're still not happy with that. So they want to like have their cake and eat it too. Like we put you in this box, but we don't really think you fit in this box. So we're going to punish you for that. And then like their rules don't stick correctly because they're messed up rules in the first place. Right. Is that, that what you're saying? Yeah. And the fact, the idea that they could even change the box because if the box was true they couldn't even right they couldn't even be like actually you don't fit in the box no because that means we're able to change what this box is and so that yeah and that is what we mean when we're saying like sex is a social construct because if it wasn't we would never be able to change that box (laughs) and apparently we can't we can't oh the lights going the light bulb's going off now i i got it or going on yeah, <laughs> um, you know, I imagine that trans and intersex folks particularly are mo- marginalized by this thinking, this biological sex being classified into a binary. Um, what you think? 
Yeah, and I, I think for for this and and my responses, right, uh, I'm gonna decenter my voice and and speak to uh, some resources we're able to gather and collect that we think you, our listeners, should definitely check out. Raising Trans Kids, for example, notes that when it comes to trans folks, sex is often used to marginalize and stigmatize. For example, when people say that a trans boy is biologically female, it is sometimes used to to diminish their gender identity, right? They're not a a real boy since they're biologically um, female. And that's not actually based in science, um, especially because that trans boy's biology may be very similar to that of a cis boy. And so additionally, some folks are born with genitalia that doesn't fit uh, into the binary and are intersex. And historically and currently, intersex babies were and still are operated on and altered without consent. Um, and that's due to the idea that biological sex is binary. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like I, you know, learned about these um, surgeries, I want to say maybe in medical school or maybe a res- residency, but I thought it was, I always thought it was interesting because baby was born and the parents picked a gender or picked a, picked a sex, I guess. Um, and I always thought that was weird because I'm like, well, what if you pick wrong? Like mm. you are saying that you, this baby has this ambiguous genitalia and you're saying that the baby's a girl, quote unquote. And then what if they grow up and they're like, but I ain't, you know, you've, you've assigned them this sex that doesn't match, you know, their essence. Again, this is way before I had ever thought about gender identity or gender expression or any of these things. But I always thought that was a really tough spot to have to force a parent to choose and then to permanently, right, choose this sex for this child. Um, So, yeah, that was all that always rubbed me the wrong way. Right. Um, That a a child necessarily didn't get the say. And the reason why they said they did that was because they don't want to stigmatize the child so that when they were two and three and they said, Johnny or you know whoever, are you a boy or a girl? They would know, you know, the answer to that question, because again, we thought of sex as these two boxes. Like, do you know you're a boy or do you know you're a girl? You can't be both, or you can't be in between, or you can't be outside of those things. But I'm happy to report that I do know for places I've worked at before and currently that these um, surgeries have been stopped. Mm-hmm. You know, they have come out publicly and apologized and said. Previously, we've done these surgeries, you know, on kids, and we have come to understand that this is not what we should be doing. And in support of intersex folks, um, we we want you to know we're not going to be doing them. So I think there is some success stories here. Obviously, it's not every hospital. It's not every place all over the world. But I think we're in a better place than we were even just like a few years ago. That's well... That's good to hear. I'm curious in this talk that we've had, do you have any takeaways? Do you have any thoughts that we can leave with our listeners? You know, I'm blown away because sex is far more diverse than I knew, than I'm sure many of our listeners knew or acknowledged. And when we asked whether a baby is male or female, girl or boy, I don't know that we can know until we ask them. Sex cannot be neatly defined 
by their genitalia, hormone levels, reproductive structures, or brain structure. And people with intersex traits make exceptionally clear even chromosomes can be a poor guide. You know, one of the things I want to end with, I want to ask is one of the things we talked about was, is this, is it a myth? You know, is this binary, as you talked about earlier, is it a myth? Is there truth to it? Or is it, you know, just all hogwash? I say, like many social constructs, it's a myth and it's hogwash. I think, but let me be clear. I think the reason that it is a myth is that it presents and parades as truth in uh, lay society at large. And so it allows, many people are functioning from the idea that there's only female or male or, and that these are the only two categories of folks. Um, So that's, my thinking of when I think myths. I see. So more rooted in like, this is just a, um, an ideal or belief that is held by many, but not true. Correct. Right. So when I was thinking about myth, um, us talking about myth at first, I was thinking that like what we know about sex may be true, but it's very restricted and very limited and doesn't include the bright, broader range of sexes. Well, um, I've really appreciated our conversation today in this episode. There's one quote that in, you know, doing this research and really wanting to get it from the folks of the people that are impacted most, intersex and trans folks that I came across that I love and that I think is just maybe what we should all live by. Um, And so this quote is by Dr. Uh, Villain who is the director of center of the Center for Gender-Based Biology at the University of California. Uh, Dr. Villan says, so if the law requires that a person is male or female, should that sex be assigned by anatomy, hormones, cells, or chromosomes? And what should be done if they clash? My feelings is that since there is not one biological parameter that takes over every other parameter, at the end of the day, gender identity seems to be the most reasonable parameter. Uh, He goes on to finish. In other words, if you want to know whether someone is male or female, it may be best to just ask. Snaps. What do you want to tell our listeners? Um, I think a couple things. One is we back. <laughs> Stay bold, bitches. Stay bold. <laughs>